and welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And we're talking all things royal, specifically perhaps England's first deposed monarch today, Edward II. Um, and this episode was by request. Yes. Um, someone do take requests. Yes. <laughs> someone did request this on Instagram and I'm so glad because when I was digging into this, I thought, wow, this was more of a tale than I remembered. Partly because I had most of my facts from Braveheart, which d- don't, don't do take that. your... Yeah, that movie is so historically inaccurate. Um, yes, but we are doing Edward II. And uh, before we get into it, I did... It's not, it's not quite a royal oops. It's more like an answer to that fascinating question that you posed last time, which is what language did William the Conqueror speak? Okay, so which language did William the Conqueror speak? So William the Conqueror spoke French, um, specifically Norman French, which was, so at the time we talked about how France was divided up into all of these different little dukedoms. Um, So Norman French was not the same as the French spoken in Gascony or Anjou, but it was a composite of French. French and Viking Danish because the Normans were actually descended from Vikings who had raided and infiltrated France at some point. The English spoke Latin, which was used on official documents. So that was kind of like the official, official language for government. But as you had mentioned, English was the day-to-day language, most likely what's known as Old English, which actually resembled German in a lot of ways. Probably there was also Viking in, or Viking influence on that. Um, not so much on the English. So Really? The, yes. So the English was... Um, very much more related to the German language. Um, but I'm thinking the Germanic relation probably came from the Danes who had invaded England. Um, it comes from the Saxons, I believe. Okay. So you're t- okay. I mean, you have to remember England is like, at this point, invaded already by an, a lot of people. an amalgamation yeah. of different cultures. Um, William actually struggled to master English during his reign. So we talked about, you know, what language were they speaking together? Um, I couldn't actually find a super clear answer on this, but I'm going to guess the answer was probably French because even people in the English court were more likely to know French than the French would be to know English. After he took over, as we mentioned in our last episode, he didn't force people to speak with the same language, but because the upper class nobles of England were taken over by the Normans, the upper classes began to speak what's called Anglo-Norman, which was a French dialect, but not the same as Norman French. It was sort of smashed in. It was more like a Franglish, if you will. Hmm. Um, But the common classes still spoke English. The interesting thing is that even though William wasn't interested in homogenizing the lands in this way, because the French was the noble language, so that became the language of like the fancy people, what you would want to aspire to, it trickled down and changed the English language pretty dramatically, which evolved into what's known as Middle English. And then examples of words introduced from this amalgamation of the two languages include the words attorney, beef, castle, chimney, duke, obviously, flowers, jury, justice, language, marriage, 
Royal, Soldier, and Taylor. Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. <laughs> Those are a lot of words that we use today. So it was kind of interesting to read about this because I did find this one site that said the 950-year-old battle that changed the way you speak. So, um, you know, we had sort of touched on this last time, but the invasion did a number on the English language, but it was interesting to see what that effect actually was. And it's because the nobles began to speak French it trickled down, but then I thought it was interesting that all the French people weren't speaking the same dialect of French, French either. So, really interesting yeah, stuff. Kind of why I wanted to know the answer to that because, like, I knew it caused the English language to change as a whole, but I really wasn't sure in what way that would have impacted, you know, William or the the nobles right away. Like, what were they speaking? Yeah. So, so I and I can imagine that English was tough to learn. It is. And, you know, even today it's considered a much more difficult language than, say, French and um, German and Italian and all of that. So I thought it was, you know, that's a quick summary of just some poking around on the Internet that I did. But I thought that was all really, really interesting um, just to kind of see how all the languages develop. So if that's something that you're interested in, it seems like there's a lot of material there to look into. But that was just my quick brief rundown. And then I have a couple of pieces of gossip, um, nothing major, um, but the interesting piece I read last week was um, Princess Beatrice has set a wedding date. And I guess the question I wanted to pose here is like, do we feel sorry for her? Because she's been engaged for a little while and her wedding hasn't been announced as quickly as you might expect. Um, most likely due to the ongoing issues with her father, Andrew. And then I think all of this like Harry and Meghan drama kind of overshadowed things too. But they are going to get married in May and it's interesting. So if you recall, her sister Eugenie had a very public wedding at Windsor. It was a lot like Harry and Meghan's wedding. Beatrice isn't getting that. She's getting married in the Chapel Royal at St. James's Palace in London, and then they're going to do a private reception at Buckingham Palace. There's not going to be a public carriage ride or any of that. So I guess the question is, do we think that's what she wants, or is this a reaction to the Andrew situation, and she's unfortunately a byproduct of that? Yeah, it does make you wonder because her engagement is going to end up being a little longer than the usual and is her actual wedding is definitely lacking the pomp and circumstance that, I mean, she's Andrew's eldest daughter. I'm sure the expectation was always that she was going to have a big wedding. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think, I think what we're seeing is a, I mean, never forget the hat she wore to William and Kate's wedding. This is a woman who had plans. (laughs) Right, right. So I think, you know, what we're seeing is a reaction and a recalibration. And I saw a a few stories that were saying she shouldn't be allowed to have her reception at Buckingham Palace. It's like, okay, let's not forget that the queen is her grandmother. I mean... Also, let's not forget that she's not the one who was friends with a pedophile. So Right. Let's not punish her. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. Do we feel bad for her? I do. Yeah. I think it must be terrible, but, you know, you can't pick your relatives, so. Or your parents. Right. So, 
anyway, thought that was interesting. And then I don't even know if I wanted to bring this up, but um, I guess Harry and Meghan gave a speech in Miami and everyone's clutching their pearls because they might have been paid for it. And um, I assume they were paid for it. Right. That's the point. Right. So, and it was, you know, one of those big banking events where everybody pays like thousands of dollars to attend and they pay somebody a million dollars to give a speech and but aren't they trying to start a foundation like this is how you get investors well maybe nobody knows right because it's super secret so that's one possibility they could be there trying to round up investors it could have been purely a cash grab on their part it could have been that they weren't paid at all like nobody knows you know i, I mean think i don't know they're trying to now have a house in vancouver la and who knows where else so like i'm sure the bills are piling up right right <laughs> so i mean that's the thing is like i think again we're just seeing i think you know you're kind of seeing them test the waters in different areas which makes sense like yes as you say they need to round up investors for their foundation i know i don't know if the banking crowd is you know it's there's some sleazy people in there but you know they've they've got big pockets too so I think it's going to be interesting to see them navigate this transition and line and so obviously the British press reacted like you would expect them to I just think I'm more like interested in the fact that it was so secretive so and who I mean who knows it may not even happened at all so I'm sure it did though but the details are very fuzzy. Yeah. So that's all that's going on there. There's not too terribly much going on. Um, although I did read like an hour ago that um, Princess Anne's son, Peter Phillips, is getting a divorce. Interesting. Yeah. And his wife is Canadian. So, of course, the story was she's inspired by Harry and Meghan. She's fleeing home to Canada. <laughs> Well, that must be it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason I bring it up was because the story was so ridiculous. But anyway. Never mind that he doesn't actually have a, a royal role, but okay. Right. Right. Although I did read in that article that apparently she converted from Roman Catholicism to Church of England so that he wouldn't have to give up his claim to the throne. As tenuous huh. as it may be, I guess maybe that's something... I don't know. I, I I don't know that much about Peter Phillips. So um, take with that what you will. There's a huge grain of salt. But the, He's probably like 20th in line <clears throat> to the throne. What? <laughs> At this point, yeah. I mean, he definitely is. So, so we'll move on to Edward. Um, Edward is Edward II. And, um, you know, we talked last time about Edward the Confessor. And then we talked about how when you have the Norman Conquest, you... Everybody started over, so he is the second Edward since the Norman Conquest, but the third Edward since Edward the Confessor. And actually, I read that um, his grandfather was Henry III, and he was obsessed with all things Edward the Confessor, and that's why he named his son Edward, even Mm. though it was an Anglo-Saxon name and not a Norman name. Starting this very long chain of Edwards. I think we've come up to number eight by now. Yeah. So really, and I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. So this Edward, Edward II, is born in April of 1284 at Carnarvon. 
and that's in Wales. So, so he's a true Prince of Wales. Yes, but he's not the first Prince of Wales. Um, no. That would be his uh, grandson, I guess we should say, but also another Edward. But he's the son of Edward I, also known as Longshanks or the Hammer of the Scots. So his father left pretty big shoes to fill. Edward, interestingly... What is Long... Sorry, what does Longshanks mean? Oh, so he was Long, Edward Longshanks, who in this episode, I'm just going to call him Longshanks just for ease of distinguishing I the two of them. I appreciate that. I'm already like, Edward who? Yes. <laughs> Um, he was 6'2". Oh, okay. Which is a, an incredible height. Wait, wasn't the there somebody short shanks somewhere? Maybe. I, maybe. I don't know. But it just, it refers to the fact that he was incredibly tall. So he had really long legs or long shanks. Okay. Edward II, and we're just going to call him Edward for this episode. He's actually Longshanks' fourth son. But he became the heir because, as typically happened, um, Edward Longshanks had at least 14 children with two wives. But Edward is the only son from his first marriage to Eleanor of Castile to live to adulthood. So he had three brothers who were older than him, but they all died in childhood. Mm. So by the time he's nearing adulthood, everybody knows he's, he's pretty much it. Um, and interestingly, so Longshanks had conquered Wales, so the young Edward is kind of used as a sort of anchor to the country. Um, that's why he's born in Wales, and he they basically set him up with a household there. As a result, he doesn't have much of a relationship with his parents because his mother wasn't raising him. He was being raised by, you know, nannies and, you know, other nobles who would be given a prestigious post of running his household. Um, although Longshanks did take him on campaign in Scotland, um, which I think if you watch the movie um, Outlaw King, did you see that movie on Netflix with Chris Pine where he plays Robert the Bruce? No. Um, I believe there is a scene at the beginning with the young Edward and he's just sort of presented as like a sniveling, you know, not so not a tough guy at all. He's 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 physically similar to Longshanks in that they're both pretty tall but that's it um he doesn't enjoy jousting he has no taste for warfare he preferred the company of common men so like I watched so I watched in preparation for this I watched a couple of documentaries on YouTube actually one we've talked about before she wolves and another one that's um produced by uh channel called absolute history and i actually thought they did a really good job and it was really interesting because that one was definitely from edward's perspective um but they were saying like in that episode you know he liked to hang out with common people and like we might admire that but back then that was seen as really strange and odd and it just made everybody think he was really weird um Hmm. so during his childhood um england falls out with france as happens and um pretty regularly uh (laughs) yeah and so edward is promised to isabella who is the french king's two-year-old daughter so don't take braveheart literally if you've seen braveheart again very entertaining movie but william wallace goes to the court of edward longshanks and meets isabella of france who is an adult woman 
married to Edward II, who is really characterized. God, is that what I'm trying to say? Caricature. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, in actuality, they didn't marry till after Longshanks died. And she, I mean, when they were betrothed, she was two years old. Mm. So that didn't happen, obviously, <laughs> among other things. Um, so William Wallace isn't wooing the French princess? Definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. So anyway, that's pretty much his childhood. And then Longshanks dies in 1307 and Edward takes the throne. So he was really ill-prepared for the throne. And I don't know if it's because his father was too distracted or if it's because he was the fourth son. But um, one of the documentaries I watched referred to it as he had a long childhood. Which basically Mm. means he wasn't given adult responsibilities as early as you might expect, especially for the heir to the throne. So he just like wasn't exposed to like how to be king. He wasn't. And also he and his father had a really rough relationship. So Edward Longshanks just really didn't respect Edward because he wasn't into the things that he was into. You know, he wasn't a tough guy. Edward Longshanks was a general, really. I mean, he's a war warlord basically i mean that's like what he liked to do was conquer lands and edward has no taste for any of that edward has these favorites and he's easily swayed and longshanks didn't respect any of that so when he dies edward is very much like a teenager even though i believe he was in his early 20s but he's like a teenager set free you know (laughs) So he basically starts undoing everything his father had done. And his first order of business is to bring back his favorite, a man named Piers Gaveston, back from exile. So He sounds this, very French. Yes. And he Or Scottish maybe. What is Piers? Is that I didn't Sorry. I didn't I look guess up. It's irrelevant his, to the it story. Is, but... Absolutely, yes. So yeah. um but he's been banished because Edward had this favorite and he Basically, it was, like, described as whatever Piers wanted, he would get, you know, Edward couldn't see reason. He, as a personality, was very short-sighted anyway. He was he could never think multiple steps ahead. He could only think one step ahead. But Longshanks had actually banished Gaveston to punish Edward. So some kind of transgression happened where um, Longshanks was upset, and he banished his favorite to punish him. So the first thing he does is he invites him back to to England. Then second thing he does is he marries Isabella to shore up his support, both at home and abroad. So that's, you know, he's going to demonstrate to the barons of England that he's serious about his dynasty and he's going to get a wife and start building a family. Um, And, you know, this also helps keep the relationship with France healthy because now he's marrying the French princess. Um, but Isabella is 12. So <laughs> hmm. there's not going to be any family building anytime soon. And um, I just want to get back to the point on Piers Gaveston. So there is, this will come up, but there is a lot of speculation as to whether or not they were in a homosexual relationship. I did appreciate one of the documentaries I watched said, you know, it didn't really matter because... The only thing that really mattered is that he would do 
too much for Gaveston. So like whatever the nature of their relationship was, nobody would really have cared because he has a wife, he's going to produce heirs, you know, and as long as you're a good ruler, you can do whatever you want. They don't. So it's not the why behind their relationship. It's so much as like that their relationship was a problem. Yes. So, and and there will be more favorites that we'll talk about. And that's really all I want to focus on is just the fact that like Edward had these relationships with these men that he couldn't put aside for whatever reason. So, and that plays into this, you know, he marries Isabella and the wedding is a humiliation for her. I mean, she's pretty stoic about it, but it's the Gaveston and Edward show. Um, you know, he decorated the hall where they're feasting with his coat of arms and Gaveston's coat of arms, not Isabella's Hmm. like it should be. They're toasting each other. They're completely ignoring the bride. Her French uncles are in attendance and they're enraged. So they go back to France and they're like, she was completely disrespected. This is horrible. Um, and the barons are mad because this isn't the kind of behavior that they want to see in a king. So this whole fiasco plus the fact that Edward's just obviously showing too much favoritism to one man ticks off the barons also Gaveston is not I mean he is a noble but he's not a baron and he was apparently very disrespectful of them he would call them names and just like openly mock them to their faces and you know they these are egotistical men that really didn't sit well with them So this all ticks them off. Most notably, his cousin, Thomas of Lancaster, who I just wanted to make a side note, is the son of Edmund Crouchback. Edmund Crouchback. And if you remember from our episode on Richard II, this is the son of Henry III that Henry Bolingbroke claimed was actually the elder son and not Edward Longshanks to shore up his own claim to the throne, even though it was a blatant lie. Mm, okay so thomas so we're seeing the start of yeah so thomas of lancaster is edmund crouchback's son so presumably if henry bolingbroke's claims had been true he would have been like insisting (laughs) that he take his throne so obviously that doesn't have any weight um but thomas thomas of lancaster is a powerful baron he's first cousins with the king and he's really trying to keep him in check so they demand that Gaveston is banished and Edward give up some power mostly this is like over appointments and finances like they're trying to keep him from running the kingdom into the ground because when he inherits it the kingdom's in debt from all this warfare um you know the people are sort of unsure of his leadership so it's really not good that he's off to such a shaky start So this is an act called the Ordinances, where basically the barons seize some power from the king. Edward's kind of stuck, so he plays along, but and he banishes Gaveston, um, but this doesn't last for very long. Gaveston is back in England within a couple of months. Um, You know, this just demonstrates his hold over Edward is such a problem because Edward is so short-sighted, all he wants is Gaveston back in England, but he doesn't see the bigger picture here is that the barons are unhappy with his rule, and they're starting to threaten him that, you know, Edward, if you don't get in line, we are going to get rid of you. Whose Um, story does this sound like? I cannot remember. We talked about someone, I think, in this series who had a similar pattern of, like, favorites. Richard II. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And then he'd, like, send them away, and they'd come back, and then it was just, like, a whole cycle. Yeah, I mean, okay. like, it's like when you're sharing power, you know, nobody likes to see one person preferred over the other people. And then this is also to the detriment of 
the rule. So the barons aren't happy, so they have Gaveston seized and executed to show Edward that they're serious. Edward is enraged, but he can't really do much because he's, he's essentially powerless. He doesn't have enough supporters in his own corner to stand up to the barons. So he is devastated by Gaveston's death, but he decides to turn his attention to other matters, and he decides he's going to follow in his father's footsteps and hammer the Scots. Uh, instead, Robert the Bruce hammers Edward and won Scottish independence for a time anyway. Um, so this is deeply unpopular. These losses are embarrassing. Lancaster tries to use this to seize power. He didn't try to seize the throne. You know, Edward would technically still be in charge, but Lancaster wants to pull the strings. Because he's, you know, he's just watching Edward run the country into the ground. They've now lost Scotland. Something has to be done. Edward needs allies. I mean, he knows he's out in the cold by himself. But he's not one to give up. So he turns to the Dispenser family, specifically Hugh Lay Dispenser. Now, when we talk about Hugh Lay Dispenser, we're talking about both Hugh the old Elder and Hugh the Younger. So they're father and son. Are they they both, have the same name. They're both called Hugh Lay Dispenser? Mm-hmm. But they're a father and son pair, and they're thick as thieves with Edward. So the father gets a lot of political influence, and he's allowed to basically do whatever he wants. The younger is more of a personal favorite, like Gaveston. So they have that same kind of relationship where Edward will focus in on Hugh Dispenser to the detriment of everything else. At this point, Edward and Isabella have kids. Like, you know, she's sort of tolerated Gaveston because she was younger and she didn't really have a choice. But when when this relationship starts to develop, it's kind of embarrassing for her as well. And nobody likes the Dispenser family. Lancaster had banished them from England over territorial disputes in Wales. So they were seizing land that didn't belong to them. Edward sort of forgives them their sins, and in turn, they help him defeat Lancaster. They got to seize whatever land they wanted and generally stir up trouble. So they're basically one <laughs> one of the things that I watched. Oh, I watched a third thing on YouTube that was called Medieval Murder Mysteries, hmm. which was entirely too focused on the manner of Edward's death, but one of the guys on that episode goes, these men were... What did they say? They were gangsters, thugs. Like, it might even said the original gangsters. I'm not sure. But <laughs> picture that in, like, a posh British accent. And he's like, these were gangsters and thugs. Um, so they, they really, it was like the Wild West. And they were, you know, the outlaws and causing trouble. So unfortunately, again, Edward not thinking more than one step ahead. This solves his immediate problem. But... He still has to contend with the other barons. So this whole situation irks a man by the name of Roger Mortimer, who's a baron who had previously supported Edward throughout his troubles. But this is a bridge too far. And it doesn't help that Edward gives some of Mortimer's land to Dispenser. So he's already pissed off. And he assembles an army and demands that Edward banish the Dispensers from England. 
So basically what he did was he gathered supporters, gathered an army. They're marching on London and they're, or, um, I think it was London or whatever castle they were in. And he's sending word to Edward, you can banish them and I'll go away. Or if you don't, then I'm going to bring my army. We're going to, you know, stage a coup basically. So Edward's in a tough spot. He can either abandon his only real allies or risk civil war. And he doesn't he doesn't really know what to do. But Isabella actually steps in and asks him to banish the dispensers for her sake, thus saving saving face for Edward. So basically what happens is she says, "Oh, if you love me, you'll banish these men and we'll have peace in England." And that way it's not really Edward's decision. So it saves him face with the dispensers and it saves him face with Roger Mortimer. So problem solved. Except just like with Gaveston, Edward can't learn his lesson and the dispensers are soon back and in power and causing just as much trouble. This is the final straw. Sorry to clarify because this reminded me of something. Is this the same Mortimer family that later is involved in the Wars of the Roses? Um, they might be related. I don't know. This guy, you'll see this guy doesn't have any heirs or named Mortimer, but they they might be a different branch. Okay. Sorry, just, I think that name was ringing a bell, so. Yeah, I, there was a Mortimer involved. That was, um, if we, if you remember the, um, Sons of Edward III, one of the cadet branches broke off into a Mortimer branch. Right. But this guy's not, this guy's okay. not involved in any of that. Remember, okay. we're a few generations up. We are, I, but yeah. I was just curious if this yeah. was like the start of. Yeah, I that. didn't. I didn't look up his yeah. family tree, so I couldn't mm-hmm. tell you. But I wouldn't be surprised if they were related. So this is, as I was saying, you know, this is like the final straw, and Lancaster's had enough, and he decides he's, you know, gonna go after Edward. But unfortunately, the dispensers are too powerful, so Lancaster is defeated, executed. And Edward can finally revoke the ordinances. So he seizes back all that power that he was forced to give up to the barons. And this is like 11 years later. But he mm. finally gets his revenge. Mortimer is so in prison. this is not happening like overnight. No, no. I mean, none of this is, you know, it takes like years to stage a like campaign. launch an army. Like yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. And so Mortimer's also defeated and he's imprisoned in the tower. But he escapes and flees to France. Barons are unhappy. Edward's had a little bit of a win here. Mortimer's gone. But this is all going to come back and bite Edward in the face. In the face? In In the... I said in the face. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Bite him in the face. (laughs) Well, I didn't want to swear because I didn't want you to have to put the explicit (laughs) warning on the episode. Um, Okay. So at this point... Things are just really dicey for Edward because he's also now at war with France over the Duchy of Gascony. So you don't need to know about anything about Gascony. You just need to know that Edward and King Charles, who is Isabella's brother, are feuding over this duchy. And as a result, Edward decides he's going to ban all French people from entering England. So I think the ones that were already there are okay, but like no one else can come in if they're of French background. And 
Isabella's own children are taken from her by Dispenser. This is Hugh the Younger and Edward because of her Frenchness. So ostensibly they don't want them under her influence because of France. But this is more like Hugh Dispenser just kind of turning the screws to Isabella. And at this point she has a long list of grievances. Like she's, you know, had to stand by and watch her husband have this detrimental relationship. I read one thing that said she was just like so embarrassed to have run from the Scots on three separate occasions because, you know, for the French and the Scots have that old alliance and mm. like she had to run from them because she's married to the English king who can't win a battle. And um, she's also, she's not the 12-year-old girl anymore that first came to England and kind of had to suck it up. You know, she's had multiple children for Edward. She's established her position. She's kind of had enough. But luckily, her brother, King Charles of France, wants peace. So Isabella seizes her chance, and she offers to go use her influence with her brother to help broker peace terms. Edward and Dispenser think this is a great idea, and they stupidly let her go. So the story goes that while she's in her brother's court, she meets Roger Mortimer, who, remember, has fled England after being defeated with Lancaster. Right. And then, very quickly, they become lovers. Now, it's unclear whether they had ever met prior to him fleeing England. So I read one thing that said that it's possible that they were already lovers in England, and when he was captured in the tower, she was like sort of like abandoned him to his fate. And then when they reunited at the French court, you know, they couldn't hide their passion. I don't know. I mean, whatever the case, by the time she gets to France, she's ticked off at Edward. And she meets Roger Mortimer, who's also ticked off at Edward. And presumably if there's some kind of attraction there, things... Now they have escalated. <laughs> yes, yes. But it is, it's probably true that they were lovers at this time. And in any case, there's certainly rumors swirling that they are lovers. So these rumors are getting back to England. So this kind of seals Isabella's fate in terms of there's not really any, any going back at this point. So first she does her job. She and her brother come to terms. She uses her influence to help broker peace, but the terms are hugely in favor of France, um, which kind of makes Edward upset. And then it's also the one thing that they do agree on is that Gascony, this territory that they've been feuding over, will just go to Isabella and Edward's son, also Edward. So we will call him Edward the Younger. And um, he's like a... 13-year-old boy at this point. And he should come to France. Edward the Younger should come and pay homage to Charles. So he'll get Gascony, and as the Duke of Gascony, he'll, you know, swear an oath to Charles over, you know, however they're working this. So this is part of the terms. Edward also lets this happen. He sends his son to England with his wife, who's already being rumored to have an affair. I don't think he necessarily wanted to do it, but it was the only way he could secure peace. The young Edward goes, does his duty, and then Edward summons Isabella and the young Edward back to England. And Isabella refuses to go back. 
She says, as long as Hugh Dispenser is around, I'm not coming back to England. Edward is so in- sorry. Was mm-hmm. Dispenser dipl- displacing her in some way, the same way she felt that um, Gaveston had done? Yeah. And he's okay. purposefully, remember, he took her children from her because she was too French. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. he's turning that's screws right. into her. I mean, he's definitely like playing the nemesis here. And now she's in France, so Edward's upset that she won't come home, but he can't do much about it because Isabella is safe. She's She's got the protection of the French king, who's her brother. And also, we've talked before about getting to France is really hard. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's not like Edward's going to come after her. But Isabella knows that she's kind of, you know, she's made her bed. Now she has to make the best of it. So Isabella and Mortimer start to raise an army in France. And they're using young Edward as a pawn, basically. He's 13. He can't do much about it. Um, So first what they do is they promise him in marriage to Philippa of Hainault, thus securing the Count of Hainault's ships and money. I mean, he supplied them with a staggering number of ships, and she had a huge dowry. So this is how they're going to raise their army and transport them back to England. Edward... And this is uh, the future Edward III, who is now mm -hmm. going to marry Philippa of... Okay. Of Hainault, yes. So Edward's like, oh crap. <laughs> so he's, he knows that they're raising an army in France. So the only thing he can do is prepare for an invasion. But his hold on the country is very tenuous. So, I mean, at this point, Isabella, Mortimer, the young Edward, and Edward's Edward II's own half-brother, Edmund of Woodstock, who's from his father's second marriage, invade England. So Edward's own family is abandoning him at this point because his hold is so tenuous and everybody just agrees he's a really crappy king. So they invade England on September 24th. Edward's like urging the people to resist. He's like, stand and fight for your king. You know, our shores are threatened. This army's coming. And the people are kind of like, okay, cool. We're going to go join them. (laughs) So everybody in England flocks to their cause. Now, the primary reason for this is that Isabella and Mortimer are doing all of this in young Edward's name. So the English didn't like their king because he's a poor ruler. He's clearly being influenced by the Dispenser family, who everyone hates. But Isabella and Mortimer are not doing this for their own, or ostensibly they're not doing this for their own power grab. This is like all in the name of the future Edward III. They're preserving the line. Yes. So no one has a problem with this because everyone's very much on board with this idea. The invasion, it's a disaster for Edward from the start. The city of London revolts. Edward retreats into the tower, and the people basically burn London down around him. Um, you know, we've talked about this, but they've always known a losing cause when they see one. <laughs> so yeah. they're not, they're not going to offer any support. So Edward doesn't really know what to do, so he basically retreats. So he flees to Wales with Hugh the Younger, while the... Elder Dispenser, the elder Hugh Dispenser, is captured by Isabella and executed. And that happens pretty quickly. So Edward and Hugh, the younger, are in Wales. And then they were going to go to Ireland. But they're basically trying to figure out where can they go to be safe to kind of regroup and build up an army. But 
now the church is supporting Isabella. I mean, Edward literally yeah. has no allies. So Edward and Hugh are eventually captured and brought back to England. Isabella was pretty ruthless. So she has Hugh the Younger executed in a really horrible way. So I don't know if we've talked about this particular manner of execution yet. But it basically, and I think it had a, ter- a name for it, but you basically castrate the individual. Oh, no, you hang them. Hang them first. to the Oh, point- this is, he was drawn and quartered. Yeah. Okay, that's what it's called. Yeah. So you basically yeah, we hang- talked about this a little bit before. Yeah. You basically hang the but you person. Can, you can describe it again in case anyone hasn't listened to those episodes. Yep. <laughs> so you basically hang the person until they basically black out. Then castrate them. Then burn the genitals in front of them. Then disembowel them. And then behead them. It's pretty uh, sick. I will say that Braveheart, the movie, is a great example of historical accuracy in that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> William Wallace is drawn and quartered at the end of that movie. But I, and I and, think actually the, yeah. the, um, maybe the influence for how he handled that in the movie might be from this. Because by all accounts, Hugh never made a sound. Hmm. Interesting. And um, Isabella watches the whole thing. Like she's clearly yeah. relishing this. So I think to say that there was no love lost between them would be a massive understatement. So she's got one enemy down. Edward is more of a problem. So he's still technically the king. And... No one knows how to get rid of a king. Uh, He's also still married to Isabella. So the issue is that it's not like the French king has invaded England and captured the English king and is going to execute him. His own subjects, his own wife, have invaded England and they're, they're trying to depose him, but they don't really know how to do that. So they try to get Parliament involved, and at first Parliament's like, we don't know how to do this. Don't ask us. But then they basically come to the conclusion that Edward needs to go, but the best way to do it is that he can abdicate, and the young Edward can rule. Or if he refuses to abdicate, then they'll also find a way to disinherit his son. So Edward chose chose to abdicate, to preserve his son's claim to the throne, and young Edward is crowned Edward III. So that's great. You know, mission accomplished. They get Edward, on the, the younger, on the throne. to get Edward II out of the way. But the fact that Edward is still alive posed an enormous problem for Isabella and Mortimer. So Isabella is serving as Edward III's regent. But this is hugely problematic because she and Mortimer start using their position to their advantage in really egregious ways. So, like, they would grant themselves land. They were taking money from the treasury. You know, they were basically enriching themselves off this position. And it just left a really bad taste in everybody's mouth. And the nobles quickly become disenchanted with them and start to wonder if they had made a mistake. And so I was trying to figure out if this was Isabella or if this was Mortimer. Do you hmm. know what I mean? Because yeah, prior to this, like, Isabella Like, who's has... the one taking advantage? 
Yeah, because Isabel has already been queen. I, I didn't get the sense prior to this that she was particularly greedy or anything, but you almost wonder if Mortimer just got a taste for power and decided to use it to his advantage. Um, and Edward does not like Mortimer. You know, it's like true, like, not like stepdad situation, obviously, because they weren't married. But, you know, it's, this is his mother's lover. He's helped depose his father, put him on the throne. Nobody asked him if he wanted to do this. So everyone starts to think, oh, this is not a good idea. Meanwhile, they have to figure out what to do with Edward. So Edward's moved around every time a new plot emerges. And there are plots. Like, you know, there's a constant threat of nobles banding together, trying to spring Edward from prison. I think he did manage to escape at least once or twice. And then he was, like, quickly caught. But this was a constant threat. Um, so eventually he's placed in Berkeley Castle. And then, then they announced that he died. The manner of his death is a mystery. It, the claim is that he died of natural causes. But it's almost certain he was murdered. This is almost like Shades of Princes in the Tower. It really is. It really is. I mean... Except he's not a child. Except he's not a child, but, you know... I was going to say, it's a lot more like Henry the Sixth, where... But I mean this idea of like, oh no no, what do you what do you mean you're talking about the the king? The king's been dead. Like <laughs> Right. So it's most likely he was murdered and probably at Berkeley Castle. The manner of his death is a mystery, obviously, because they didn't write down what they did to him. So there are tales that start to emerge that describe a very grisly manner of death. Um, which I feel like I must bring up that episode I watched on the murder mysteries. They reenacted this and I mean, they were like obsessed with whether or not this happened. But I think part of that just goes to show you it probably didn't happen. So basically, I'm going to describe it very, very quickly. But basically, they wanted to kill him and not leave a mark. So the way that the best way they devised to do this was they inserted a cow's horn into his anus basically to scrant like stab him in the intestines and then followed that up with a hot poker that would have left a mark yeah and I was like thinking I was like what is with the hot pokers like oh my god <laughs> but I don't think if you wanted a quiet casual death that you could pass off as natural circumstances I just don't think that that's how you would do it. So a lot of people think that that's not what happened. This tale emerged a long time after he died. It's probably more a reflection of the rumors of his homosexuality. Because yeah. it just makes it like super salacious and like, oh, well, that's like how he died. And, you know, he was gay anyway. So like, you know. It sounds it, like church propaganda or yes, something. Yes, yes. Like it. Especially if like they're trying to keep it quiet and not leave a mark, that's like the opposite of what you'd want to do. That would leave a physical mark on the body, and I'm sure the screaming would alert people as to what's happening. Yeah, and it's just almost like too horrific. I mean, granted, last week we talked about a man who had his eyes stabbed out with hot pokers. It's true, but I don't know. It's just it's pretty bad, and it probably didn't happen. Most people think if he was killed at Berkeley Castle, he was probably smothered. Because that's how you do it. You smother him with a feather pillow, no marks on the body, you know, 
the official story can be natural causes, no problem. The other reason why they think he was murdered is that this was just incredibly fortunate for Mortimer and Isabella because these plots were coming one after the other. But if he's dead, then there's no impetus for the nobles to plot against them. So his death was hugely advantageous for the two of them. Once, once he does die, um, it's not really it's not really the end of the story. So you know, then you have sort of like would-be deposers getting deposed themselves. So Isabella and Mortimer are hugely unpopular, and Edward III eventually cleans house. By the time he's like 16, 17, he's had enough. So he executes a coup in 1330 and has Mortimer arrested on 14 charges of treason, including the murder of Edward II. And obviously he's found guilty and executed and problem solved. Isabella is... Is he executed in a grisly way or just, just straight up? Just straight up treasoner's death, you know, probably just beheaded. Okay. Isabella is spared, um, but she's no longer in charge. She's not going to be the regent or anything. She basically retires and becomes a doting grandmother to her grandkids. You have to wonder what Edward's, the Edward III thought of his mother. That's why I think that he must have been convinced that it was mostly the influence of Roger Mortimer because of the way she was treated. He didn't punish her. I mean, he kind of sent her away for a little bit, but it was more of like a cooling off period. And then he welcomes her back into public life. Um, she's heavily involved in his own children's lives. So I didn't get the sense that long term he blamed her for a lot of this. Um, he seemed to place all the blame on the, you know, at the hands of Roger Mortimer. So there's one final wrinkle in this whole tale is that there's a question as to whether Edward actually died at Berkeley Castle. And this is because there's a story that when Edward III is, you know, a little bit older, he receives a letter. For, and I forget what the letter was called. I didn't write it down. But it comes from um, Italy, I believe. And the letter claimed that his father had escaped Berkeley Castle and lived out his remaining years at a hermitage in Italy. Um, some people claimed, some contemporary writers claimed that Edward III and Edward II actually met up at some point. There's a story that he meets this Welshman who everybody was like, oh, that was actually his father. And so if you believe that story, then the claim is that really Isabella and Mortimer faked Edward's death, either because he escaped or because... They needed him out of the way, but they didn't actually have the stomach for killing a king. So it's impossible to know, but this little footnote does add a little flavor to the tale where it's like, oh, he's deposed, murdered, or maybe he was deposed, allowed to escape, and just lived out his days in like a nice, as a nice, peaceful hermit. I don't know. So there was no, no, no body when he died? There was... But the way that they handled his funeral was a little suspicious. So the funeral took place like three months after he died. So they didn't have like a public viewing or anything because the body was in such bad shape at that point. Um, and what was the rationale for waiting so long to bury him? I think it was because they had to like bring him 
I forget, I read it, but it all seemed very, like, that's sort of the the conspiracy theory part of it, was that they had all these, like, very flimsy excuses, and the idea being that they just delayed, delayed, delayed until they could just claim that they were forced not to display the body because it was in such poor condition. The, apparently, they had him attended to by like whoever washed the body and prepared it for burial wasn't the normal person who would be doing that so it was just like a random peasant basically and and not like recognize the king yeah and not like high-ranking members of you know the church or the nobility whoever would normally be doing that kind of role um Hmm. so so there was a little bit of sketchiness there i would tend to think that that was all because they did murder him (laughs) they were trying to keep it kind of quiet because they didn't announce his death immediately it was like a little bit after the fact so you know it's kind of like a choose your own adventure like it's clearly pretty shady it's it's this one i think is a really interesting tale because it's sort of like that story of like the king that's like pissing off the nobles and you know one of them's gonna give him his comeuppance and then his wife just like comes out of nowhere (laughs) and it's she's the one that does it so it's it's really interesting in that respect yeah it's uh there's more mystery to this than I guess I knew so yeah I very much enjoyed like I was the so I watched you know medieval murder mysteries then I watched the episode about Edward the second that really just talked about like his personality and how ill-suited for all of this he was. And then it was like the She-Wolves documentary that was talking about Isabella and you know you you really feel bad for her. I mean, she's put in a really tough position from the very beginning. And also it's like history is written by the victors and by men and you have to wonder, you know, truly what role she played in all of this. I mean, it's clear she played some role. But as to how much... But whether that was willing or as a victim or, you know, after being a victim, you know, we just don't know. Right, right. It's impossible impossible to know. But it's it's a fascinating story. And as I was reading it, I just thought, oh, I'm so glad we did this one (laughs) because... Yeah, I can't believe we came so close to not. (laughs) I know, I know. So um, that's the tale of Edward II. Yeah, and, uh, and that wraps up our series on deposed monarchs. So not to say that's the last time we're going to talk about a king or queen coming to a violent end, but um, for this particular series, yes, we are eight deep, I think, in uh, deposed or murdered or just slain monarchs. Conquered. So <laughs> hope you enjoyed it. Conquered, Yes. Um, and we'll take a little break as we usually do between series and we'll be back sometime in the spring or the summer or the summer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I suppose it will depend on what we pick for our next topic. And on that note, if anyone has any more requests out there and has an idea of what we should focus on for our next series, let us know because we really don't have any plans at this point. So, um, open to suggestion. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, This one was a perfect example of how suggestions can work out rather well. So thank you. All right. Until then. Until then. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. 
If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.